Welcome back to another episode of Beloved Books. I am your host, Heidi Vega. Thank you so much for listening. I know it has been a little bit since I recorded an episode, a lot of things going on, but still doing the podcast, still enjoying it. This is the podcast all about books, short stories, and poems. So welcome. Today's episode is all about Batman and Psychology by Travis Langley. The book was published in 2012. It is in the genre of, I guess, nonfiction, but comics related as well. So it's still kind of divided in the fiction realm, of course. In essence, it's a good pop culture book if it's something that you're interested in going into the kind of a deeper well of knowledge from the Batman comic book series. Please take a read. I definitely enjoyed it um, for its psychology, but also just, you know, getting into the mind of an actual expert behind, you know, this type of work. Travis Langley is a professor of psychology at Henderson State University, an organizer for the Comics Arts Conference. He is a psychologist who speaks regularly on the psychology of superheroes at conventions like the San Diego Comic-Con, especially about the psychology of Gotham's Dark Knight. So that in itself um, was what drew me to this particular book. I myself am a psychology student trying to get my bachelor's right now um, and hopefully my master's to become a licensed therapist. I've kind of tossed back and forth the idea of becoming an official psychologist. I think what worries me there is just the amount of work, you know, to actually take the time to do, not to mention, you know, the gumption and energy that it takes to get a PhD. So, but that, you know, I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. So I won't necessarily go in depth with the book, but the particular highlights that I found reading it. So Travis writes, he's the superhero with no superpowers. The one we can almost easily believe might inhabit our world, while his secret identity is the most fantastic of the three. One charmingly handsome billionaire living in a grand mansion on top of a vast cave versus two nebbishy newspaper employees that fantastic wealth helps us accept his masked identity as something that feels real. Someone has to pay for those wonderful toys. The real world has more people known to be super rich than super powered. Batman is the hero even adults can envision existing in real life with less suspension of disbelief. Even though he has opportunities few people enjoy, Bruce Wayne hails from a city, not a mythical island or distant world, and he builds himself into a hero through training and hard work. No radiation, secret formula, or magic ring required. It's very, very cool to think about the, the essential existence of this person is pretty regular to the rest of us. The only difference, of course, being that, you know, he's an orphan and wealthy beyond wealthy, but the essence of his humanity exists. He is a human being just like the rest of us. Travis Langley also takes the time to kind of go into the 
movie interpretations of the Batman character. Um, and he starts with the different versions that of course have come through going back to the original movies that had come by and then also going through Tim Burton's work uh, and of course uh, Christopher Nolan. He says that Batman Begins is about fear, what causes it, how it's overcome, and how it's instilled. Between scenes of Henry Ducard teaching Bruce advanced fighting techniques so that he might turn fear against those who prey on the fearful, we see how eight-year-old Bruce gained the fears his adult self is learning to face. Before we first see the man, we see the child running, playing, and falling through an old well into a cave filled with bats. Nightmares haunt the boy. His father assures him that the bats flew out to frighten him only because they'd felt their own fear. Because all creatures feel fear, especially the scary ones. Once back in Gotham, Batman instills fear through intimidation and violence while Dr. Jonathan Crane, aka the Scarecrow, creates long-lasting fear via panic-inducing toxin. This is your mask, Rachel Dawes says, touching Bruce's face in the film's last daylight scene. Your real face is the one that criminals now fear. While one face is truer to himself than the other, as this Bruce Wayne, Christian Bale actually plays three roles. The reckless billionaire, the reckless billionaire playboy, the symbol who must be more than a man, and the flesh and blood mortal his surrogate father Alfred knows best. Which is certainly a good point. I think, in essence, you have to play up the kind of character that people see you as because you don't want to draw that attention to yourself that you could potentially be the Batman that everybody's trying to figure out who who is this person in the Dark Knight we have of course different villains here different entities of, of fear and craziness I guess um, it includes depictions of mental illness through the Joker's psychotic kind of you know, personality, um, for the most part, however bizarre he might appear, the Joker seems dangerously sane. He understands his actions. He uses order to sow chaos, developing well-orchestrated plans to foster anarchy. And although the people of Gotham will prove themselves better than he expects, he correctly anticipates many actions people will take and recognizes the reality around him. He has no hallucinations or obvious delusions, keyword here being obvious when he tells two-face he doesn't scheme i just do things either he's lying or he has a view so warped that he fails to recognize his own scheming nature we do not know that of course being that he doesn't seem as obvious in his delusions and he doesn't seem as i guess outward with certain parts of his mental illness but he's Obviously, to me, as uh, a person analyzing the situation, he doesn't seem like he's in good health necessarily, right? But I think there is there is a true essence of the fact that the Joker is very well aware of the consequences of his actions. However, he chooses to react accordingly and doesn't really care how others feel about it. I don't think he's he finds it amusing when people do what people expect of others but he also doesn't necessarily mind 
being proven wrong, he'll just, in essence, he'll just move on to the next thing, the next scheme, the next, the next piece of his entire, you know, mental state, considering that he really just wants to aggravate the Batman in order to, you know, reveal himself. There are moments that make the audience question the Joker's grip on reality. This character, who attracts psychotic henchmen, may have lingering symptoms from his own past psychosis. He keeps making involuntary, repetitive movements, flicking his tongue, smacking his mouth, which suggests tardive dyskinesia, a condition that arises as a consequence of long-term or high dosage use of antipsychotic neuroleptic medication. Even after discontinuing the drugs, patients may show these tick-like actions for the rest of their lives. And it kind of goes into the fact that, obviously, in my opinion, when you live in a city like Gotham, and somebody does suffer from mental illness, are they actually achieving any sort of rehabilitation, any sort of actual assistance from medical personnel? I don't know. Because we have seen what Arkham Asylum does to people, not to mention I don't necessarily think that the city itself probably looks for people to truly be rehabilitated, more so on their own than in an assisted living type of a situation. The book also goes into trauma, specifically the traumatic experience that Bruce Wayne had to endure as a young child. Um, And the book goes into not just Bruce Wayne's trauma, but the trauma in essence that other characters have gone through that have impacted, you know, their fight or flight response to essentially, or freeze response, really, um, and has caused them to potentially go into this particular line of um, vigilante work, you know. Trauma involves experiencing actual or threatened death or serious injury to oneself or others and reacting to this horrific event with intense fear, helplessness, or horror. A tragic event is not necessarily traumatic. The world's three best-known superheroes, Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man, are all orphans, and all their origins include defining moments centered on their parental losses, which, of course, being true. You know, Peter had lost his Uncle Ben, Superman had lost both of his parents, and Batman, of course, the same, lost both of his parents um, before his very eyes. So there's a lot of trauma here, and there's a lot of trauma that can cause a reaction for someone to be anger um, or sadness uh, or both. And a lot of the time, I think people who do go into these particular situations, they don't know exactly how to feel. And a lot of people will either try to distract themselves from the pain and the sadness, or I do think that some people, and in this case, Batman, trying to trying to ease some of that pain takes it out on people that he sees as worthy of that rage being criminals. The book also has a chapter called Why the Mask? So the covering of superheroes in general, why the disguise, that kind of thing. Batman wears two masks, 
The Dark Knight's Cowl, and Bruce Wayne's Public Facade. Each mask reduces his current consciousness of certain aspects of himself while raising his consciousness and concern about others. So I think we could say that, in essence, Batman pretending to be this vigilante, but also, of course, really being this vigilante, he has to have that other person to mask for being being that he is actually Bruce Wayne. He has to continue being Bruce Wayne in the public eye so as to protect the people around him, which I guess you could also say wouldn't be very many people, but I mean, he still cares about others. And then of course, being having the actual Batman suit and the Batman mask he uses to make sure that nobody knows that it's him. Plus, could there also be an essence of I know that nobody knows who I am, so I have this maybe other sense of freedom to behave the way I want to with these criminals and not necessarily feeling responsible for the actions that I'm doing right now because I'm not being me right now. I'm being the Batman. So I don't necessarily feel as tied to my own individual persona, but the vigilante persona doing it for others, doing it for justice. But then we could easily see that going out of hand and going a little, a little far. The book also goes into discussing fears and phobias. We all have things that bother us or situations we just don't like. Some of them we might sharply fear, but that doesn't mean we're phobic. Many people who say they have phobias are actually wrong. Discomforts and dislikes that fall short of pathological fears are aversions, which is a very good distinction to know because I think you having an aversion to, let's say, mm, clowns, but do you actually have a phobia of it? Where if you actually saw somebody dressed as a clown, would you actually start to get the symptoms of a phobia or would you simply be uncomfortable? And I think that's a good distinction to know. A phobia is a persistently intense and unrealistic fear that causes such distress or so significantly impairs function that it counts as a mental illness. Degrees of fear that fall within the normal variety of human experience do not qualify. People with agoraphobia have a fear of open spaces, an often crippling dread that renders its sufferers unable to go outside. Those with social phobia fear social situations. They want friends. They wish they could leap into social interactions, but they become so embarrassed and afraid that they end up avoiding the very thing they want most. So I think that's certainly a good thing to know, considering that I definitely had thought in the past that I was very claustrophobic, um, as well as maybe even um, social phobic because I hate social situations, but I can maneuver them more than I thought I could. I just, they naturally make me uncomfortable though. Um, there's also a nice list here of all the other phobias that are, um, pretty, pretty interesting. Automatonophobia, fear of ventriloquist dummies. Botanophobia, fear of plants. Cryophobia, Fear of extreme cold, ice, or frost. Egyptophobia, fear of Egypt or Egyptian culture. Electrophobia, fear of electricity. Gemini phobia, fear of twins. Herpetophobia, fear of reptiles. 
Leporophobia, fear of rabbits. Motophobia, fear of moths. Ovophobia, fear of eggs. Sinistrophobia, fear of things to the left. So pretty interesting. There's an entire list of all of these. Um, Of course, I don't know that I've ever felt so encountered by a particular phobia for me, for myself, that has ever caused me to not do the things that I want to do or feel like I have to do, I guess. So that's also a distinction, you know, to a point where it stops you from living your regular life. That is a sincere phobia. Phobias often get started through respondent conditioning, known more commonly as classical conditioning, simply because Ivan Pavlov discovered it between before Edward Thorndike made another kind of conditioning well-known. Bruce Wayne does not have to learn to find a fall into a cave frightening. His initial fear is a natural unlearned reaction, an unconditioned response to an unlearned, unconditioned stimuli. The bats naturally startle Bruce when they fly out. The sight of a bat or the shadows around the estate had never previously scared him to this degree, but through association with that unconditioned response specifically, the fall and the fear, anything reminiscent of that bat, like a performer's mask during a play, becomes a conditioned stimulus, a learned trigger with a conditioned response of learned fear. And I could say that most of us have that particular entity of being in ourselves. We, let's say, have never been deathly afraid of, let's say, car crashes before until you've been in one and you feel that maybe you don't feel as comfortable driving as you did before, considering that you had gone through a pretty scary car crash. The book also, um, has these like case files for particular characters in the uh, comic series of the Batman, which I really appreciate. Um, they can't cover everyone, of course. They it would be too large of a book, but um, they do cover a few that I find pretty interesting. So, case file five one, the Scarecrow, real name Doctor Jonathan Crane, first appearance was in World's Finest Comics number three, fall nineteen forty one, origin a gangly bookworm victimized by school bullies and raised by a grandmother who regularly punishes him by leaving him alone in a dilapidated chapel where flocks of birds might peck and torment him. Jonathan Crane masters his fears by growing up to become a master of fear itself. A psychology professor whose unorthodox methods include firing a gun in class while demonstrating the acquisition of fear, The standoffish, shabbily dressed psychologist never fits in with other faculty. Why buy nicer clothes when that money could go into his book collection? Going into business as a one-man protection racket, he gets unethical businessmen to hire him to drive their rivals away through his use of violent scare tactics, even murder. So it certainly has the essence of a person being very, very much abused and becoming a master of that abuse himself in order to feel powerful he uses it on others so not a good thing but i guess in a way we can understand the roots of all evil some theories on crime according to humanistic psychology founder abraham maslow nature gave us an inborn drive to become better people and to pursue our potential as human beings 
And whether the many challenges we face along the way help us advance or hold us back is up to us. Aside from the innate drive to fulfill one's potential, humanistic psychologists believe strongly in free will and therefore hold individuals responsible for their own actions. Maslow said that we just must meet our most basic psychological needs before we can progress into higher levels of personal growth, working our way up through a hierarchy of needs, like a pyramid. And I think that is true for everyone, whether they're evil or not. I think we are driven by our desires. There are things that we as people have to do in order to meet those desires, those needs, simply as being able to pay the rent in an apartment, being able to uh, fill the fridge, being able to buy clothes. Those are reasons enough for people to go to work every single day, however many hours you have to work, and those are meeting those needs. However, for others, there might be a greater drive for other needs versus awaiting those stipulations, I guess we could call them, having to go to work in order to get money. A person might see a greater need to get money very quickly and then find the motivation and reasoning justified in the mind to rob a bank, maybe. So according to Maslow's pyramid, the hierarchy of needs pyramid, we have uh, physiological immediate drives at the very bottom, hunger, thirst, sleep. Then we have safety, long-term security, shelter, employment. And then we have love and belongingness, friends and family, intimacy, then self-esteem, self-respect, healthy confidence, and then self-actualization. Criminal behavior can emerge among those who have grown frustrated over unmet needs or among those who choose to stay mired in a lower level, simply wanting more and more. Psychopaths hunger for baser needs so thoroughly that Maslow felt they could understand love no better than a person blind from birth comprehends the color red. The hierarchy of needs provides a useful construct, a popular model with both uses and limitations. And I think understanding the fact that, you know, a psychopath essentially will hunger for their needs, but won't understand why other needs are needed by others and not themselves, I guess is a great way to explain it. Um, Somebody who cannot feel love does not understand why others need it so much and why others are influenced by it so much. Prognosis. Do psychopaths get better? Can they? I don't know. I think there's always a chance for redemption for everyone, but that might be too vague of an umbrella to really answer that type of question. No medication can make a psychopath grow a conscience, and they do not respond well to therapy. Psychopaths lack insight, drive, and incentive to change because they aren't disturbed by their behavior. They are rarely genuinely motivated to change which makes any real collaboration between therapist and patient unlikely. In fact, some forms of therapy seem to make them worse by allowing them to hone their skills at manipulating others. And this is actually something that I have 
heard many times from my psychology professors that all a master manipulator will use a therapist or a therapy session in order to hone their skills to become better at their malicious intents, their malicious behavior, being that they know how a person can mentally work internally and externally. So, and I think that's why psychopaths and even sociopaths have a lot in common in the essence of like they're so hard to identify in the public. I think a lot of people who would, let's say, go through their neighbors in their neighborhood, could there be a fear that one of my neighbors is secretly a a psychopath and I just didn't realize that because they maneuver through their life similar to mine, but are they actually going through their life that way or are they appearing to go through their life that way so as to not gain suspicion? Case file 6-1, Bane. Definitely one of my favorite villains, I think, in the Batman comics. Real names unknown. First appearance is Batman, Vengeance of Bane number 1, January 1993. Origin, a corrupt court system imprisons a woman in a hellish South American prison, Peña Dura, for the crimes of her lover, a revolutionary who evades capture. After she dies, their son has to serve out their sentence in that prison where he was born. He grows up among killers and madmen. He plays with the rats. Um, He learns from hardened criminals um, whose books provide the boy a classical education and whose gifts of toys give him some solace, Um, especially his teddy bear Osito, which the boy considers his only friend. Bane at the age of... uh, Bane, at the age of eight, commits his first murder. Bane pushes himself to become harder, stronger, deadlier every day, to do more than survive. An experimental drug called Venom, expected to kill him like previous test subjects, instead gives him monstrous strength. He engineers a jailbreak and heads for Gotham City, attracted by the challenge of beating Gotham's Dark Knight. Bane is to Batman what a juggernaut called Doomsday is to Superman, a brand new big bad who comes out of nowhere. Bane's drive to beat Batman for the sheer sake of beating Batman illustrates his strong achievement motivation, need for achievement, the need to overcome obstacles, to attain a lofty standard, and to rival and surpass others. And that in itself is very interesting because a lot of people are very motivated for different things, right? Very often you see villains who are motivated by wealth, motivated by um, power, motivated by um, control. And in this particular character, Bane doesn't necessarily need to control Batman. Bane seeks to simply beat him. He weans himself off Venom, a source of physical might, when he decides addiction to Venom would be weakness, and yet he risks risks addiction again at times when the venom offers him an advantage in pursuing a valued goal and that in itself is pretty astounding to me i think that's what i find about him so fascinating is that he is willing to remove the venom in his life knowing that it gives him an advantage but he also doesn't mind going off of it if it means that he won't be dependent on it and i think that's why bane himself is not a character who 
is really close to anyone because he seems he sees he sees the attachment of anyone in his life as a weakness and he doesn't want any sort of weakness in his life histrionic personality disorder it is a constant attention-seeking behavior the strama llama far exceeds far exceeds the normal human need for attention histrionic essentially means theatrical melodramatic many people who try too hard to get attention don't qualify for this disorder because that yearning does not fully rule their lives the histrionic person does whatever it takes to be the center of attention at any time they make great shows of emotion like wailing at the funeral of people to whom they probably weren't particularly attached to only to switch readily to another expression if it gets more reaction those emotional displays are fleeting and shallow unlike the narcissist even the compensatory narcissist the histrionic person feels altogether inadequate and unworthy while the narcissist expects to be the center of everyone's world the histrionic person does not expect attention and therefore frantically perpetually strives to get it some histrionic individuals habitually tell lies a symptom called mythomania compulsively lying even when honesty seems advantageous because the truth makes them uncomfortable lies protect them if you don't like the histrionic person's lie he or she doesn't have to take that dislike personally because it's not about anything real whereas a scowl at something truthful could hurt deeply and if this sounds familiar to some of you you might actually have someone in your life who has these types of tendencies not necessarily someone who has histrionic personality disorder or even narcissistic personality disorder but maybe has those tendencies and um those aren't necessarily good um i can definitely speak from personal experience that i actually know someone in my life who is a um i mean she doesn't mean to compulsively lie i feel like i can tell in her expression that she doesn't mean to especially when she gets caught on it but I feel like it's so natural to her. Um, it's disappointing, of course, especially when the lie usually is always caught. And it's it's pretty astounding that you would think that that person would then change her behavior, not, not choose to lie anymore, considering that people are starting to pick up how she tells lies. However, it becomes, I think, a tick for that person that they can't help but tell lies um, or exaggerate overly exaggerate about things that are going on in their life similar to if you've ever encountered somebody somebody in your life who does not have a problem about talking about their personal relationship i definitely knew someone who used to complain about their spouse a lot to me and um uh, this particular situation ended up going on for years and years and years and then it turned out that it that it wasn't the spouse actually being the problem but the person who was telling me this um, and they got divorced and it's so interesting how people are very open to painting a picture about someone knowing that you don't know them knowing that you cannot prove it necessarily um but then you hear things on the back end and you find out that oh wow so all of those things that people were complaining to me about their spouse what actually wasn't true wow and i think that's a good lesson for us to learn is to especially when it comes to bad things that people like to share with us i would simply try to uh, take it with a grain of salt 
because there's always the chance, right, that someone could be over-exaggerating or outwardly lying about their life in order to get attention, um, which is a sad thing to think about, but I mean, some people are simply that way. Case file 7-3, Poison Ivy. Fun character, super fun. Real name, Pamela Lillian Isley, doctor in some versions. First appearance, Batman number 181, June 1966. Origin, a botany biochemistry student writing her thesis on plant-animal hybridization. Shy, timid Pamela, gets seduced and betrayed by a man who poisons her, altering her biochemistry in a way that renders her body immune to all toxins. Her kiss becomes toxic to other people. Her mood subject to violent swings. Unable to bear children, she experiments with creating plant-based life forms that she calls her children. Robbing and killing to fund her research, she becomes an eco-terrorist, an environmentally motivated terrorist dedicated to preserving plant life at all costs. Over time, she becomes more plant-like herself. Her, Her skin turns green. She develops an empathic link with plants and then the florokinetic ability to control them through sheer will and poison ivy evolves into a formidable foe very very fun also not to mention i think we have also seen the evolution of her character um being a little bit more in the pop culture these days um her and harley quinn of course having an intimate relationship um, which i love uh, and love to watch so it's certainly nice to see that a lot of these characters can evolve and have different versions of them so i love that character poison ivy quote i am not insane i've just been pushed too far can't we all understand that case file 8-2 harley quinn real name dr harleen francis quinzel first appearance Batman the Animated Series, Episode 22, Joker's Favor, September 11th, 1992, originally voiced by Arlene Sorkin. Origin. Brooklyn girl, Harleen Quinzel, grows up like several of the Robins, with one non-criminal parent and one lawbreaker, that being her con artist father, whose modus operandi is to charm older women and fleece them out of their fortunes. Even from behind jailhouse glass, her father tries conning his own daughter out of whatever loot she has stashed away. Harley remarks when visiting her father in jail, the main reason I became a psychiatrist was so I could understand why you did the things you did to our family. It's a family so full of contradictions. The Christmas tree in the corner near the menorah seems fitting. Her mother's pattern is to express frustration by slamming the door in Harley's face or blowing up and shouting. Young Dr. Quinzel interns at Arkham Asylum because I've always had an attraction for extreme personalities. They're more exciting. You can't deny there's an element of glamour to these super criminals. The Joker plays on her interests and insecurities, and he charms her with a wink, tempts her with his secrets, earns her sympathy with lies about his father, and wins her heart by making her laugh. I think you could say that uh, it could fall under the stereotype of um, girls who uh, grow up and marry their fathers. Um, A lot of that I think I can relate to, especially on a personal level, being that um, my my dad was certainly a um, criminal. 
And uh, there's also the essence of you wanting to fix that person, um, being that you share a love for them still for their relation to you. However, you also want to understand what motivated them. And I think you want to fill that void of love by loving a man who is very similar to your father hoping that that will fulfill that void in your heart that your father had left you this transitions into a discussion about dependent personality disorder which again i can definitely say that i've run into people in my life who don't have this disorder but who essentially have the tendencies dependent personality tendencies um, especially when it comes into um, personal relationships an individual with dependent personality disorder defines his or her uh, own self-concept in terms of some other person. Beginning their adulthood, beginning before adulthood, the consistently and severely dependent person fears separation, lacks self-confidence, clings and submits, passively lets others lead her through life and easily finds herself crippled with indecision all in the hope that she might receive caregiving comfort and security because she fears that the dependent person does not as easily disagree with anyone especially not the one upon whom she depends most she may make outlandish self-sacrifices and tolerate verbal physical or even sexual abuse even though this can be a person full of strengths and abilities she feels so unable to function alone that she will go along with almost anything rather than risk having the other person leave her she does not trust her own abilities she's afraid to trust them recognizing her own strengths scares her as though being able to live alone might increase the chances that she'll wind up all alone the basic human need for affiliation has twisted and swollen into something that rules this individual. When a dependent person attaches to a narcissist, it might work for a time because they're both in love with the same person, but the dependent's clinginess wearies the narcissist who wants much from others but gives little in return. And that certainly can be said about the uh, Harley Quinn and Joker relationship being that you clearly see that the relationship is very one-sided. It's very much that the Joker loves who he is and Harley Quinn loves the Joker. But I very, very much doubt that the Joker has ever loved anyone, let alone Harley Quinn. Um, and I think a lot of it goes back to the fact that I think a person has a very hard time loving someone who knows that probably doesn't love them back but it's so easy to kind of put those feelings to the side knowing that if if I do choose to believe that if I decide to believe that this person doesn't love me I'm going to be all alone and nobody else will ever want to meet with me so I can definitely understand a lot of people who um are afraid of that um I can definitely say that for me personally um, if, if you don't want to be with me, just don't be with me. <laughs> just don't toy with my feelings. Don't hide in the shadows and start having these secrets. Like, don't do that. Just tell me outright that you don't love me anymore and it'll hurt. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that I won't be hurt by it. I absolutely will. But I would rather that than the potential to be in a relationship that isn't real anymore and that doesn't exist. Case file 10-1. Red Hood. 
Jason Peter Todd. First appearance as Jason, Batman number 357, March 1983. As Robin, Batman number 368, February 1984. As Corpse, Batman number 428, Holiday 1988. As Red Hood, Batman number 635, December 2004. As Nightwing, Nightwing number 118, May 2006. As Red Robin, yum. <laughs> Countdown to Final Crisis number 17, January 2008. Origin. This version of Jason Todd, the son of a loving mother who dies of poor health and a small-time hoodlum, you could say, whom Two-Face has murdered, is a street orphan stealing the Batmobile's tires when the Dark Knight first meets him. Lonely after Dick Grayson outgrows the Robin rule and becomes Nightwing, Batman decides that Jason stands his best chance in the life of Bruce Wayne, and so he adopts him. After Jason persists in trying to work on Batman's cases, Bruce teaches him to redirect his criminal skills into crime-fighting. Though initially spunky, optimistic, uh, Dick Grayson um, was, you know, that person, uh, Jason turns increasingly distant, disrespectful, and disobedient. And I think a lot of that you could probably put into um, the way that Bruce is, being that he can't help but compare um Jason to Dick Grayson, and, and that ends up being a problem. Uh, in one of his final appearances as Robin, he may have tossed a drug dealer to his death after the man, protected by diplomatic immunity, sadistically drives his abused girlfriend to suicide. He slipped, Jason claims. When Jason soon discovers that the late Catherine Todd wasn't his biological mother, he sets off on a trek across the globe in search of his birth mom. He repeatedly crosses paths with the Joker in a series of coincidences that strain credulity, credulity far beyond the suspension of disbelief comics already require, until the clown beats the boy nearly to death with a crowbar and then finishes the job with a bomb. Batman arrives too late, and Jason is dead. But Jason gets better. <laughs> Reality-wrenching events of the series, Infinite Crisis, resurrect Jason inside his coffin. And in that it, quick pause here while I'm reading this case file, um, if someone is dead and died in such a horrible, horrible way, do we want to resurrect him, like, realistically? Or should we just let him be? You know, be at peace, Jason. <sighs> so Jason claws his way out and up through the earth, only to emerge from his grave brain damaged. His mind and personality do not fully return until Talia al Ghul immerses, immerses him in her father's Lazarus pit. Finally fully restored, Jason is stunned to learn that the Joker still lives. And that hurts. The question that sears at Jason is not how he came back from the dead, but why he has gone unavenged. Confused, disappointed, and angry at Batman, the young man adopts a new identity as the Red Hood taking a name the Joker once used, and returns to Gotham as a brutally violent vigilante who also shakes down the mob. When Batman assumes Jason is angry that he failed to prevent his ex-Robin's death, Jason tells him, Bruce, I forgive you for not saving me, but why, why on God's earth is he still alive? And that in itself is, is pretty interesting that you would be more concerned about 
being avenged more so than you returning from the dead. But I also understand that. The pain being that, what have you been doing since I've been gone? Have you really just accepted my death and have done nothing to achieve justice in my name? That's, I mean, that is a curious thing to think about. Jason shows behaviors associated with conduct disorder a repetitive, persistent pattern of violating societal norms and the rights of others, but of no more than moderate severity. So not necessarily as extreme as like a joker necessarily. However, it's within line. It's in tow with that only because it's not far from it. And his rage and anger um, essentially supplement his motivations. There's also the potential for someone like Jason to have developed post-traumatic stress disorder, as well as oppositional defiant disorder. It's like conduct disorder, one of the disruptive behavior disorders, and the stubborn disobedient pattern gets him killed. Technically, the grown Jason fits the criteria for antisocial personality disorder through his aggressiveness, deceitfulness, repeated unlawful behavior and lack of remorse and a lot of things I think bring us back to the whole lack of remorse if a person doesn't ever truly feel bad for what they've done there is I think very little that that person could probably do to change because it begins with that it begins with feeling sorry for what you've done Jason tries to get Batman to see that Gotham is ugly and that its most dangerous criminals need to die. And there is, I think, a lot of good conversations that people have had in the past um, with me about why Batman doesn't kill people and why he should possibly. Um, and it goes back and forth and back and forth. And, and I think that goes back into the whole theory of us wanting to be the, you know, judge and executioner of people and um it's hard to say which one is is correct do we leave people too many chances and opportunities to change only to see that they never will or do we kill people without ever giving them chance to get better if batman were to kill the joker he'd prove both the joker and jason right being that everyone has an ugliness to them inside and we all are as humans we are all destined to be awful awful things and a lot of people don't want to think about that i guess it goes into that discussion of you know death penalty or no death penalty i guess well that is the end of this episode that is all that i will be talking about um thank you so much for listening uh social media is at beloved books one on twitter and beloved books two on instagram um, my email is still belovedbookspod at gmail.com and i will close with lasting words and today's lasting words comes from the batman i wear a mask and that mask it's not to hide who i am but to create what i am <laughs>